0: The following message is from Ridgewood Church in Greer, South Carolina. For more information, visit ridgewoodgreer.com. My sister got married in a textile mill. So actually actually it's, that's her right there. Yeah. Actually, it's not true. actually—they just had the reception in a textile mill, but it's a more provocative way to begin a sermon. To say it the other way, it's a better opening sentence. And what strikes me about that is, I would guess that for the majority of us in this room, that's not unusual for us. We're kind of used to that. We're used to many of us, especially in upstate South Carolina, which was the textile capital of the world, you know, in the mid-20th century, we're used to seeing mills. They just dot the landscape, the Appalachian Mill, the Taylor's Mill, the, the Simpsonville Mill, down on Simpsonville. You have the Greer Mill, you have the Victor Mill. You're used to seeing those things, and you're used to seeing things like wedding venues now take their place. You're used to seeing things like breweries and restaurants and coffee shops and apartments all moving into these old mills. It's not all that unusual for you. But I'll tell you who it was really unusual for my Nana. Nana, when she found out that Brie was getting married in that textile mill, my Nana was very confused, borderline offended at that. Because she said, I used to work in that mill. I would spend long hours working my fingers to the bone, putting these textiles together in that mill. Why on earth would anyone in their right mind choose to have a wedding reception in a mill? Now, that kind of story is illustrative of this idea that we live in what's been called a post-industrial society. So our, our lives are lived in the shadow of the industrial revolution. So we know about mills. They're these big, giant sort of behemoth brick buildings that dot the landscape in upstate South Carolina, and we have this kind of vague awareness that Nana used to work in one a very, very long time ago. Our lives are very much lived in the shadow of the influence of the Industrial Revolution, but it's kind of since receded into the background until you go attend a wedding reception at a mill, right? Now, there's an author, a guy named Andrew Wilson, who says that, that actually, that, that our relationship to Mills and to industrialism is actually kind of a perfect analogy for the cultural mood towards the church in 21st century United States. We live in a post-industrial world. People who are much smarter than me describe what we live in now as a post-Christian world. Our lives are lived in the shadow of the Christian revolution. Not just Christians, but Western society. We all live in the shadow of Jesus and the teachings of the Bible. The profound story of grace, the power of forgiveness, the dignity of humanity. These huge shifts that change the world that it's almost impossible to overstate. But its influence is one that's kind of receded to the background. We're post christian Many of us have never known the world to be different. Churches used to be the heartbeat of the city. Communities were once built around them. They used to bustle with activity. But now, again, the cultural mood is these things are now these dusty old buildings that have sat empty for ages, these giant behemoth brick structures that we have vague kind of connections with our grandparents towards. Yeah, Nana used to be involved in one of those a long time ago, but that was like ages ago. Those things are no longer relevant unless there's a wedding in one, right? For many of us, for people who are kind of in my age bracket, I would think that that has probably been the norm for you. You're kind of used to living in a post-Christian society. It's sort of been the norm for us to see or sort of perceive the church as being in this kind of decline. But even in my lifetime, it feels like something something has changed. Something has shifted. Maybe it was 9-11. Maybe it was 2014, the Obergefell Supreme Court ruling. Maybe it was 2020. Whatever it was, I think each of us recognized that that sort of post-Christian mood has changed and has become even more acute. Something is different. A favorite read of mine in recent years was a book called Strange New World by Carl Truman. I have a quote on the screen for you, kind of describing this shift. Truman writes, For many people, the Western world in which we now live has a profoundly confusing and often disturbing quality to it. Things once regarded as obvious and unassailable virtues have, in recent years, been subject to vigorous criticism, and even in some cases come to be seen by many as more akin to vices. Indeed, it can seem as if uh, things that almost everybody believed as unquestioned orthodoxy the day before yesterday that marriage is to be between one man and one woman, for example, are now regarded as heresies advocated by the dangerous, lunatic fringe. Yeah, things have changed. And it is really disorienting, speaking frankly, and disturbing. Things that once seemed to be assumed or axiomatic have shifted to being heretical, almost villainous. There's another book I was helped by an Australian author by the name of Stephen McElpine, says it like this, he says, only a few generations ago, Christianity was the good guy, the solution to what was bad. Rather than being on the wrong side of the law, we were the law. Christian morality was assumed and passed mainly unchallenged. The cultural, legal, and political power structures affirm Christians. Then something changed. Over the course of the 20th century, we became just one option among many, a voice to be considered, but not to be followed unquestioningly. If Christianity worked for you, fine. If it didn't work for me, also fine. But the problem is that's not where we are now. The tide has shifted further. Increasingly, Christianity is viewed as the bad guy. Christianity is no longer an option. It's a problem. I just wonder if, that has, if any of you have observed or sort of felt these tectonic plates that have been shifting in these directions. Now, of course... In some respects, Christians have always been the quote-unquote bad guys. More on that in a second. But what makes this shift so jarring, so different in recent years, is that it feels like it's happened in a matter of minutes. Things that felt very commonplace moments ago now make us bigots, positioned on the wrong side of history. And so what are we, do, what are we, what are we to do with this change? As Christians, it can be dizzying. How are we to respond to what seems like has taken place? How are we to follow Jesus in a culture that doesn't share our way of life, that doesn't share our commitments or understand our values? How are we to deal with opposition and ostracization and being bad guys in Jesus' name? How are we to move forward as God's people? And the answer is by looking backwards to a letter that was written 1,950 years ago to Christians in northern Turkey, a letter to exiles, a letter written by Peter called 1 Peter. We're going to spend the next 15 studies uh, Sundays rather studying 1 Peter in a series called Letter to Exiles, where Peter gives instructions for people who are in our, who are in our exact predicament. It's a call to faithfulness in exile. We're going to start this morning with just the first two verses of this letter, and I think there's two key words in this passage that are jam-packed with goodness for us that can help, us, help orient us to Peter's goals in writing the letter. Let's look again at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who were elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, unlike our letters where we write, dearest so-and-so, um, I hope this letter finds you well, love sincerely, Clark, you know, whatever. Unlike our letters, that's exactly how Clark writes, by the way. <laughs> Unlike our letters, Peter's letter begins with the from at the beginning, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are exiles. Now, Peter was an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, which means that he is a messenger of Jesus with a capital M. He has been appointed by Jesus as one of the founders of his church, and he's been sent out by Jesus to go make Jesus known. Peter was once a fisherman who was called to follow Jesus some 30 years prior to this letter. This is the Peter, if you remember, if you're familiar with the stories of the Bible, the Peter who walked on water, the Peter who uh, had a foot-shaped mouth, we've said before, Peter who cut off the soldier's ear, Peter who denied Jesus. This is the Peter who's now writing this letter about faithfulness in exile. Again, if you know the stories of Peter, it's just so great that he writes these letters, right? Right? It's so great that he becomes a leader in the early church. Just as an aside, it's kind of a hopeful statement about what Jesus can do with people who don't quite have all of their ducks in a row, right? This is who's writing this letter. Secondly, it's worth looking at who Peter says he's writing this letter to. What does he say? To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. Verse 1, to those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion. He lists all these areas in northern Turkey where these folks are disseminated. These would have been affluent pagan cities, uh, kind of all over modern-day Turkey, very much opposed to the teachings and the way of Jesus. And so Peter refers to these Christians as those who are of the dispersion. And what happens when you disperse something? What are you doing when you disperse something? You you're, you're disperse seed, you're, you're scattering it broadly. You're scattering it widely. That's the idea here, that these people are dispersed. These Christians, faithful to Jesus, are dispersed all over this region. Like the people of Israel, who were dispersed amongst the pagan nations during their exile, these Christians are dispersed, or exiled, amidst foreign nations. So this fall, we we did a teaching series where we taught through the big story of the Bible. And if you're here with us, think back uh, to a, a couple of weeks ago when Aaron taught on the exile, what was the period of exile for the people of Israel? It was a period in their history where God, these folks who were formerly established in the promised land were displaced. God judged their sin and displaced them amongst foreign nations. These nations came, and besieged their cities, and displaced their people. Israel was cast into the surrounding nations, dispersed, exiled from their homes, and now tasked with faithfulness amidst these pagan nations, like strangers in a strange land. Think about the estimated 70 million refugees in the world today. These folks who are exiles from war or natural disaster in places like Afghanistan or Ukraine or many others all over the world. Folks who are forced out of their homes into cultures that are unfamiliar to them. With different values, different languages, different food. This is the image that Peter is using to describe God's people. You guys are in exile. Like the Jews during that time who would have been dispersed, made up what was called the diaspora, which is from the Greek word diaspora, translated dispersion here. Those Jews who didn't live within the promised land but were away from home, scattered, dispersed all over the Roman Empire. This is the image that Peter uses to address these Christians, these churches scattered in these cities. And what Peter's doing with this is drawing on this image to say something really, really, really important about their identity as Christians. And by extension, our identity as well. And it's this. We are exiles. We are exiles. Have you ever had an experience of not belonging somewhere? Several months ago, I told a story about how my, my, I took my family, we, we, were, we were at the lake, it was a rainy day, we wanted to go eat some barbecue. We happened to a barbecue place that was in Seneca, South Carolina. We walked in and the place was just disgustingly orange. Brad Brownell, the coach of the Clemson basketball team, was there and it was, it was miserable. And, and, and I looked around and I realized that all of my family was wearing South Carolina gear, right? And and kind of use that to talk about this kind of sense of not belonging somewhere. Maybe you've had that experience. Maybe in high school you sat at the wrong table by accident one time, and it was clear, I do not belong at the table with these people. Or maybe you've traveled and lived internationally. We have folks in this room who have lived internationally as missionaries. We have folks in this room for whom living in South Carolina is living internationally internationally. And if you've ever been in that situation, being forced to deal with a minority status you've never known before can be really, really tough, right? And so at the very outset of the letter, what Peter is establishing for these Christians is that you are exiles. More than not just not belonging in the world, you are exiled. You are not at home in the world. Now, I would imagine some of this hear that... And and we hear, and we we sort of hear what Peter's saying, but we push back a little bit, and we say, yeah, we're not at home in the world, but isn't the world ours? We we think of the promise of the new heavens and the new earth, and the promise that we will reign with Christ. We think about Christ's promise that the meek will inherit the earth, that we are uh, forever with Christ, ruling with Christ, co-heirs with the Lord Jesus. So how can we say that we're exiles? And, And the short answer is, yes, all of those things are true, they're just not true yet. In the meantime, we exist in what's been called the overlap of the ages. This is an image we also used in that teaching series from several months ago. We exist in the overlap of the ages, that at the coming of Jesus, he brings the kingdom to bear, present tense. That's what the cross represents. He brings the age to come. The kingdom is now alive and breathing and at work during the midst of this present age. And so that leaves us kind of in this lurch, kind of in this middle space, this overlap of the ages where we're faithful to the Lord Jesus, but we're faithful as those who were exiled, dispersed amongst the kingdoms of this world. Paul uses a similar idea when he writes his letters. Look at this from Philippians chapter 3. Paul writes, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as the enemies of the cross of Christ. But their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Look at verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Or consider Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. Think about Jesus himself, the one who was born in a stable because there was no room in an inn. This is what he says of himself in Matthew 8, verse 20. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Or think about John chapter 17 in the high priestly prayer. I have this on the screen as well. Jesus speaking of his disciples in a prayer to the Lord. He says, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Do not ask that, uh, not ask that you may take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Finally, John chapter 16 verse 33, where the Lord Jesus says, "In this world, you will have trouble." The point is this, is that Jesus' people are exiles, pilgrims. We are awaiting our home one day, but in the meantime, in the meantime, we are homeless. And it's always been this way, even if you and I are feeling it acutely now. Maybe exile is a really apt description for how you feel kind of in the modern age. I had a conversation with a brother in our body just a couple of weeks ago where his work was demanding their employees celebrate diversity, including sexual diversity. And he was stuck in a situation where his work demanded him to literally applaud sexual ethics and certain conceptions of gender that he just can't. And I wonder how many of us have actually had to walk through that. And I, I I would guess that it's probably more than a few of us. Of course, of course, God's people are to be loving and winsome and gracious in our interactions. But the reality is, as we're seeing that that is not enough. The world is demanding fealty. Many of us have been compelled towards saying something we can't affirm and we can't celebrate. And again, what would have been acceptable 15 minutes ago is now beyond the pale. If you haven't experienced it, I can't help but think you will. You absolutely will sooner or later. So Peter offers a little cold water to the face for us. We're exiles, man. We do not belong here. We are like a splinter stuck in the heart of the world, and it has an immune response to us. By the way, um, this is an area, gender and sexuality, we feel especially burdened to equip the body in. i have this coming up in a couple of weeks. Author Nancy Piercy said that human life and sexuality have become the watershed moral issues of our age. So why is that the case? Why does God care who we sleep with? Why are these issues so contested? What are sex and gender ultimately for? How does the Bible speak to these questions? That's what we want to attempt to do in a couple of weeks at this uh, discipleship summit. Our goal is to ultimately point out how vapid the world's take on these issues is in comparison with the gloriously rich teaching of the Bible. The aim is to teach what the Bible says about these issues and really show that what we're talking about are fundamentally distinct anthropologies. We're talking about different conceptions of what it means to be human. So what we're going to attempt to tackle in a couple of weekends. You can sign up online for that now. Um, if, you're, if you're not familiar with these summits, the, it's, it's, a, it's a Friday night kind of dinner and teaching and then a Saturday morning breakfast and lunch kind of teaching on these issues. You're invited. And just to be really clear, this is not about how to spice up your marriage. That's not the, the aim of this. Uh, and I'm, I'm not making a joke. I just, I just want to be clear. That's not the intent on this. What we're talking about here is how to think about these issues as the Bible speaks about these issues. And, and deeper than that, what it means to be human. And how the Bible speaks into that. So we think about exile, we think about the reality of our exile, and I just wonder how do you feel about this. How do you respond to that? Are you tempted to be discouraged by some of the things that we see taking place in the world? Do you wonder about God's purposes in all of this? Why would God scatter us abroad in this way? Are we forgotten? Hello God, do you, do you not see the things that we're dealing with here? You see how things are changing in a way that's not good? Is your heart filled with fear or dread for yourselves, for your kids, for your grandkids, about the sorts of worlds they will have to be inhabit uh, that will have to inhabit one day? How are we to respond to this? I mean, frankly, there are reasons to be discouraged and even disturbed at the shifts that we have undergone culturally. Peter rips off the band-Aid. He tells us. Something we we just, we have to internalize. We're exiled. But, but, verse 1, we are elect exiles. What do you think of when you hear the word elect? 2024 election year, maybe your mind goes there. Maybe if you're familiar with the teachings of the scriptures and, and some of the sort of debates over Christian history about these words, You have all sorts of associations. But the thing that I would say about the doctrine of election is it's one of those truths that's intended to be a pillow truth. You know what I mean by that, a pillow truth? It's one of those truths that help you sleep at night. And what's so so kind of tragic about the doctrine of election, I mean... It's tragic when, when, when anybody uses truth as a bludgeon, but this truth especially is not to be used as a bludgeon. It is a pillow truth. It's a biblical word, most notably in places like Ephesians 1, where Paul pastors people towards comfort with this word. Look at verse 2. These three prepositions were elect exiles. Verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. He first says that we are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. What does that mean? Some read this passage and think that essentially God has this divine telescope through time and that he looks forward to what we would do. He saw that we would choose to believe in the gospel and he therefore chooses us on that basis. So God chooses us, again, kind of peers through the telescope of time, sees that one day you would believe and then chooses you on that basis. And that's not, I think, the best reading for two reasons. The first is this, that reading would ultimately make God the elect, not his people. The people are described as the ones who are elect. If God looked into the future, saw that we chose God, and so he chose us on that basis, who's really doing the choosing? Who's doing the electing here? Well, we are. And so, if we're the ones doing the choosing and the electing, that actually makes God the elect, not God's people the elect, which is not, again, what this passage says. The second reason I think that's not the best reason reading rather, is it's important to think about what knowledge means in the Bible. What does knowledge mean in the Bible? Well, it's not simply a matter of cognition. I know that atoms consist of electrons, protons, and neutrons. Fairly certain that that's accurate. To know is to to kind of have in my head certain information about a thing. But the way that the Bible speaks about knowledge is different. Tom Schreiner says that knowledge in the Bible is more accurately described, listen to this, As covenant affection. Here's an example from Amos chapter 3 verse 2. God's speaking about the nation of Israel. He says, you only have I known among the nations. Now does that mean that God doesn't know Midian? Or God doesn't know Edom? No way. What it means is that God has set his covenant affection on Israel. You only have I known. Or Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 5. God says to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. So this is not a cold, kind of distant, looking through the telescope of time. This is knowing and loving. This is a setting of affection. Think about the sparrow, Jesus tells us in Matthew 6. God sees and he knows the sparrow, and from there Jesus offers us encouragement. If he sees and knows the sparrow, surely, children of God, he sees and knows you. Right. So imagine that kind of detailed, specific, fatherly knowledge of those he loves. Now extend that forever backwards before the beginning of time. We are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. God knows his people. He's known us. He has always known us. And he's always loved us. And what's more, he knows our lives, he knows our ups and downs, and listen, he knows our troubles, and he even knows that you would be an exile. Pillow truth, right? We're elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Secondly, he says we're elect in the sanctification of the Spirit. Now, the word sanctified just basically means to set apart. Sanctification is often used to describe the process of our growth in Christ-likeness. We're being progressively sanctified, made holy. But the point that he's making here isn't about progressive sanctification. It's that we have been set apart for God's purposes. We've been set apart by the Spirit to bear the name of the Lord Jesus amidst these pagan nations. It's worth mentioning here that all of this is plural. I love that he says, we are elect exiles. We are. Y'all are elect exiles. We've been set apart as a we, together. One of the most nourishing truths that we can, we can relish and sort of enjoy together is that we belong to Christ as a family. Each of us belong to Christ together. What strength and encouragement comes from knowing that we are exiles, but we are exiles arm in arm as brothers and sisters. The third thing he mentions here is that we are elect exiles for obedience to Jesus, the Son, and for sprinkling with his blood. It says here that, salvation and obedience go together. If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, I especially want to speak to you for a moment. What the Bible tells us is that we deserve God's judgment for sin, yet Jesus was judged for us. That's the part about the sprinkling with blood here. We're saved by Jesus' death for us. We're reconciled to God, and we're promised a life on the other side of death forever. But with salvation comes a kind of whole life gratitude. I entrust myself to the one who saved me. Carte blanche, I give myself to the one who died for me. That's what Peter's saying here, that we have been saved for obedience in response to the sprinkling of the blood that's been applied to us. We're saved to a kind of new life in Christ and we try and live a life that is honoring to Jesus in response to what he's done for us. And so let's ask, why might Peter have included this little bit right here in the opening of this letter? We're exiled, but he establishes with his readers that we are elect exiles. Peter wants to assure us and assure his readers that they belong to Jesus and that Jesus will actively uphold and sustain them during their time of exile. Light shine in the darkness. The darkness was repulsed by it. But you know what? The darkness will not overcome it. And one day, the light will transform the dark, and it will be but a shadow and a passing thing. And the truth for Christians in exile, listen, is this. God has always seen us, and he has always known us, and he has sovereignly positioned us exactly where he intends to. His eye is on the sparrow. How much more is his eye on you, Christian? We are the elect seen and known and loved and chosen and cared for by God according to the timeless, boundless, bottomless covenant affection of God the Father. And he knows exactly what we're experiencing. And listen to this. He has always purposed this for you. God is not surprised that Jake Green or Diana Baker or Trevor Hoffman are a part of a church and post-Christian 21st century Greer, South Carolina, with increased hostility to some of our most basic ethical commitments. None of that surprises the Lord. We are elect exiles, according to the foreknowledge of the Father, set apart by the Spirit, called to obedience to Jesus. And here's what this means for us. We're homeless, but we're not hopeless. We have to come to grips with our exile. We gotta gotta realize that it would be a great tragedy for us to get too comfortable here. That's what the Bible means when it talks about worldliness. And so Christian, it is good for us to have an appropriate degree of restlessness and impatience and frustration with the state of things. To the Lord Jesus returns, we are pilgrims. The world is ours. We will rule with Christ. Yes, but not yet. That is not yet the call for us. In the meantime, We've got to come to terms with the reality of our exile. And frankly for us, we could be facing some real ugliness. This is a reality for us. Even in the Western world today, we could be joining in alongside brothers and sisters all over the world who are acutely, you know, you know deeply acquainted with their exile and their opposition in the name of the Lord Jesus. We can and we should learn from brothers and sisters in China in the Middle East and elsewhere need to learn what it looks like to expect rejection, as Peter teaches us later in the letter. When he says, don't be surprised at fiery trials when they come upon you. Of course, this doesn't mean we go looking about, you know, for for suffering with a a martyr complex. Peter addresses this as well. But if Jesus was hated, is the follower not greater? Or is the follower greater than his master? In other words, we can expect what the Lord Jesus himself experienced. But Listen. As those who are elect exiles, we do not despair. We're exiled, but we're exiled and belonging in the hands of the Lord Jesus. Christian, what ultimately could we ever have to despair over? John 16, 33, in this world you will have trouble, but Jesus says, Take heart, for I have overcome the world. Christian, your life is hidden with Christ in God, hidden with Christ in God. You are twice over secure. You are seen, loved, known, and kept by God. And so whatever he has for us, we can trust that he is good and big and very much in control of our destinies. And like the psalmist, we can say, whom have I to fear but you, O God? We look around and we despair, and we rightfully despair at a lot of things, but the unique thing that we can offer, Christian, is hope. Is to be people who don't drown in discouragement. It's interesting to think that, you know, whether you're on the left side or the right side of the spectrum, politically, whatever, no one's feeling especially rosy about things right now. But you know who stands apart and stands distinct from that sort of despairing air that we all breathe? are those who believe and trust that they are elect exiles forever in the palm, the scarred palm of the Lord Jesus. And I submit to you that one of the unique things that we have to offer is a kind of joyful indifference to these things. Hope. We may be homeless, but we are not hopeless. If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, I'm really curious how all of this sounds to you. One thing I hope you actually sense when you're with us is that we are distinct and that there is a kind of weirdness to us, but we hope that you see our weirdness as something that's kind of, well, weirdly compelling, that you're, you, can, you can resonate with our discomfort with the world as it is. And we would invite you to, to hope in, a, in, a, in, a, in the joy of a world to come alongside of us because of what Christ has done for us. And i would just ask you to consider what it might look like to take a step towards this hope and joy with us. This morning we're going to take some time to take the Lord's supper. This is something that we've been doing almost every week for the last couple of couple of weeks, couple of months. One of the key reasons that God's people were given the supper is strength for exile, for sustenance as we go about knowing and bearing Jesus in a world that is hospitable to us. It reminds us of both these things, that we don't belong here. Jesus' body was broken. Jesus was rejected. We can expect the same for ourselves, but it reminds us that we belong to him, and there is no shaking us loose from his hand. We like to say that we look three directions in the supper. We look backwards to what Christ did on the cross for us. We look outwards to the brothers and sisters with whom we share this meal. We look forward to the day that is to come. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we love you, we thank you, we pray for your help as we consider some of the weighty things that have been said this morning. We pray that you would give us a bulletproof hope in you, a deep assurance that we belong to you and there's no scheme of hell or scheme of man that can remove us from your grip. And we pray that you would give us joy in, in light of all of the things that we're bearing up under and stressing about, Jesus, would you, would you make us at bottom a people of hope and joy and delight in you? I pray for my friends who are here this morning who have not yet believed. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would open their eyes to see the things that we have seen of you. Would you help them to see and, and believe and, and find themselves drawn into the stuff that we find so doggone compelling about you, Lord Jesus? And as we take this supper, we do pray that you would sustain us for the task of bearing your name in a world that is inhospitable to us. We love you. We pray all of this in your name.